We are in route to a facility with a 24-year-old male fell from the roof of a two-story building. We got a party one trauma. Driver involved in a motor vehicle accident. 65-year-old male complaining of chest pain. 22-year-old male, multiple GSWs to the abdomen. He's circling the drain. I'm Tanya Mantooth, and welcome to the Into the Unknown podcast. Today, I am here with Randy Mantooth and Kevin Tai. Full transparency, I'm Randy's sister. And am I correct that this is the first full-length interview you guys have done together? Uh, you are correct. Um, hey, good to see you, buddy. Good to see you. <laughs> Uh, after all these years. Yeah. Well, you know, after uh, I was talking to Kevin last night and he said that uh, we actually had done an interview, but this was on on a talk show uh, and it wasn't really an interview. It was with um, Dinah Shore, right? Uh-huh. And then you said two other people, and I swear I don't remember it. Who were the other people you said? That, Merv Griffin. Merv Griffin. I don't remember that at all. And the other guy I can't recall. Okay, well, that just shows you how old we're getting. All right, so you got two out of three. That's good. Yep, yep. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm excited about this because I have no idea what Kevin's going to say. And, uh, and, of course, he doesn't have any idea what I'm going to say either. So I'm excited uh, as much as anybody is. Hence, into the unknown. We don't know what anybody's going to say. So you guys have been friends for decades. We won't name the number of decades. but And your friendship has really stood the test of time. It's really incredible because you guys have been best friends since you met in your mid-20s. So what, what do you think is a testament to that? Um, well, we're opposite in a lot of ways. Um, he's a thinker and I'm not. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I think opposites attract. Um, you know, when I first met Kevin, was in Jack Webb's office. Uh, the, the very night uh, I met Bobby, uh, Bobby Troop, Julie London, Bob Fuller, and then I met Kevin. And uh, when I first saw Kevin, I said, you know, who's that shy guy sitting over there in a the corner? not saying anything, and not laughing, not doing anything. And they said, well, that's your, that's your new partner, Roy DeSoto, meet him. And I got up and I went, oh, boy, here we go, man. He's nothing like I am. And within a matter of days, we were, we were friends, and we've stayed friends for, I'll tell you how long, 50 years. Wow. Yeah, you know, I hadn't really thought of it as to why but uh, how we, you know, became such great friends, but it, it really has to do with the show mm-hmm. and with uh, paramedics. And But you stayed friends long after the show. Yeah, but it was the, the show always had, we always had a thread and, and it was a real positive thread. And it was a, and it was like a marriage, you know, I mean, you've you heard that before, but it basically... You work at being together, and and it it works out pretty well. And in our case, it worked out exceptionally well. We've managed to keep a friendship for over fifty years. It's pretty important to both of us. So, it is. Yeah. So, what do you remember of that that meeting at Jack Webb's meeting? office? Well, I remember that Jack was in charge, and he was a pistol. 
you know, in those days, there were two big offices, buildings on the Universal lot. One was Lucille Ball and the other was Jack Webb. And um, I remember being really taken by meeting uh, Bobby Troop and Julie London, because I was a real jazz fan. Uh, and Bob Fuller looked so handsome, you know, a real leading man. And that big, deep voice. Yeah. And Randy, you know, it was great to meet him. I, we didn't really know one another. He actually came over to my house. I lived near, I had a rental near the studio, and I had a, uh, I inherited two ducks and a rabbit Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And when Randy came over, he came over with a white pair of pegger pants to see my property. And and I did, failed to to inform him that sometimes my rabbit kind of goes a little nuts. And he went and he, he tried to mate with my leg. <laughs> <laughs> and was successful. You know, so found a paper towel to wipe off his leg and things... <laughs> Never changed much since then. <laughs> that was that was the weirdest thing I've ever had happen to me. Was to watch his rabbit. I said, "What's this rabbit doing?" Oh, I, oh, okay, I see what he's doing. It was just it was bizarre. So he saw you as shy in that first meeting. What was your first impression of Randy? Um, I thought he was a handsome-looking. You know, easygoing guy. He seemed like a working class guy to me. So I felt instantaneously comfortable with him because I was the same. You know, yeah. Kind of came from a common background of family, kind of just struggling to make ends meet. And you know, the stove it was heated the house, and and how easy it could have been to turn off the heat and not have any. Uh, only difference was that Randy would move from place to place, whereas I was pretty much set in downtown L.A. and then moved to Pasadena and li- lived in kind of one place for a while, not unlike my partner here. So what would be, so name something about each other that you most admire. Well, as far as I'm concerned, uh, Kevin's eternal patience uh, things would go wrong, and and I would get so visibly upset about it, and and be upset for quite a while. And Kevin would be, oh well, you know, everything's going to be okay. And I would get frustrated with him because I I felt he should be demonstrative like I was being. But it was just his his kind patience that just really moved me, and I think I. Uh, after a while, I got to where I was thinking to myself, you know, he accomplishes more than, than I'm accomplishing, uh, and I'm being very demonstrative, and he's not, and yet he still seems to conquer conquer the situation. And uh, and so I kind of learned that. Hmm. Now, tell Kevin, what, what do you admire about me? <laughs> Randy has... When we were acting, I always was uh, trying to act to be a certain person. Uh, I wasn't comfortable being who I was. And Randy had the extraordinary ability to be exactly who he was, was in front of the camera. It was a beautiful thing to watch. 
There isn't a moment of, of anything other than truth about his work on film. Um, and that's what I most admired and continue to admire. He's, he's wonderful with friends, as you all know. I mean, he's, he's just, you know, when you meet him, he's there with you, he listens, and, you know, it's a wonderful thing. So, Kevin, I have a story about you. So when I used to, you know, I was 13, and I get to come hang out on the set, and I was painfully shy. And whether or not we were on set or in the motorhome, you always came and sat next to me and asked me what books I were reading. (laughs) (laughs) And we would sit and talk about books for hours, and you were so sweet and very, very kind. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. The Into the Unknown podcast is brought to you by FirstNet, built with AT&T. FirstNet is the only network built with and for first responders, including paramedics and EMTs. It's designed to fit your evolving communications needs with innovative, mission-critical solutions so you can keep yourself and your communities safe. So now share with me... What's one thing about each other that makes you shake your head? Hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of shaking of your head, Kevin. Uh, you want to start on that one? Boy, I don't know. that. Um, nothing leaps off the page as anything. that You mean something that drives you crazy or yeah. something? Um Oh, I know one thing. It never drove me crazy. It just was kind of a curiosity that on occasion, or often he would tell a joke to a huge multitude of people and then forget the punchline. Oh, God. Remember? Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've done that more than, more than once. Impeccable, pro, you know, prep all the way through and then blew the punchline. <laughs> oh, more than once I, I did that. Um and and I don't I have no excuse for that. Um, I think what drove me crazy is that when I would do that, you would laugh, and uh, which made me feel even more like an idiot for for uh, remembering for not remembering uh, the the punchline of a joke, and th- that would crack you up more than I- any of my jokes. I would watch you just kind of tilt over like the Leaning Tower of Pizza and start laughing. <laughs> But it was endearing, you know? I mean... (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to come out looking real stupid on this one. (laughs) All right, so tell me about, did you audition for the roles, or did they come seek you out? How did that happen? Well, I I can tell you, in in my case, I did not audition. Um, Bob Senator saw a piece of film that I did, um, called, uh, I think it was The Bold Ones, and I was working with Hal Holbrook, and he saw this piece of film uh, where I was being uh, uh, questioned in, in court by Hal Holbrook, and he just said, that's my Johnny Gage. Um, and so I was informed I was going to be playing Johnny Gage on emergency. So I didn't, and I didn't even know I I remember Monique James um, uh, bringing me into her office. She was was, uh, my boss. 
she was vice president of, of what, uh, New Talent, something like that. At Universal. At Universal Studios. And uh, and she said, uh, darling, she always had this this kind of affected uh, accent, said, darling, you will be playing uh, Los Angeles County. And she held up this little card, this little index card, and said, you will be playing Los Angeles County firefighter paramedic, paramedic, uh, Johnny Gage. Then she put the card down. And I said, what the hell is a paramedic? And she picked the card back up, turned it over and said, I don't know, but we're certainly going to find out. <laughs> and how did you react to, to getting the role? Uh, well, I was just kind of dumbstruck. I, you know, to tell you the honest to God truth, I didn't really, I, I, I said, you know, I, I don't think I want to do this. And she was like, stunned and she basically told me to shut up and sit down and she said you're doing it uh, I just want to know why you would not you know would turn something like this down and I, I said well I said uh, uh, Jack Webb has the show right yeah well, Jack Webb will probably want me to cut my hair right she goes yes I said well I don't really want to cut my hair and she said oh shut up <laughs> And, that was, <laughs> and you had to cut your hair, right? I did, indeed. Yes, indeed. I got a pretty, pretty good haircut at that point. So, Kevin, did you audition? Yes. Um, oh boy. Um, I was told to, about the, you know, the, I, and I didn't know what a pilot was really. I, I, just that there was a pilot and there was a role and offered, and what I could I come in and. And so I came in, and it was at Jack Webb's office, and Jack was there. And uh, and I was really nervous, really, you know, because he's, I grew up on him, even back when I was a little kid listening to radio. He was like, you know. So there he was in person, and uh, it was just he and I, and I forget who, there was somebody else there. It wasn't Bob Senator, it was some, someone else. Uh, Bob was more responsible for hiring Randy and Jack was uh, hired me as it worked out, but I read about four lines on the audition, and he and he suddenly he stopped me and he said, "Stop, kid!" And he called up. He said, "Sid Sid Scheinberg." He called Sid Scheinberg. Get over here, Sid. I think I found the kid. And he, and he hung up. And he said, "And he said, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think said, let's let's arrange a screen test." And so they arranged a screen test on the back lot, and I was still nervous. And I remember trying to do the lines about three hours later on a sound stage, and was having a miserable time. And the door flew open, and David Jansen came on set and put his arm around me. Wow! And he said, "Don't be nervous, kid. This is a this is a bunch of bullshit. Just take it easy." And. It was him putting his arm around me and being so comforting that I actually was able to mellow out a bit. And I kind of hold him responsible for having been hired and changing my life. So, wow. Yeah, did, lovely did guy. Did he know what he did? I don't think so. I think I was just another day at his life, you know. But he had a huge impact on mine. Wow. Now, did you know that? No. Uh -uh. I'm hearing this for the first time. Yeah. So what was... So, okay, talk about the Jack Webb meeting where everybody's there. You're meeting, you know, Bobby Fuller, you know, Bob Fuller, Bobby Troop, Julie London. How intimidating was that? Um, 
Well, in the beginning, I didn't think it was all that intimidating until uh, Bobby Troop walked in. Now, I had just seen the film MASH, the mm. original film, and, uh, and, and I, just, I just loved this film. And uh, so I didn't really recognize Julie London at first. I finally went, oh, oh yeah, that's Julie London. Oh, that's Crimea River, Julie London. And when Bob Fuller came in, I went, oh, yeah, that's the Laramie guy. Yeah, yeah. But when Bobby Troop came in, I went, and I had just seen him in this film. And I went, oh, my God, that's Bobby Troop. Now, Bobby's, Bobby didn't have a lot of lines in the movie. He was he was a uh, uh, he he played a sergeant who drove everybody around in his jeep, and he, and the jeep was always breaking down or doing something, and so throughout the entire movie, he would say you know this damn jeep, this damn jeep, and it was it was just a kind of a through line throughout the film, you know, and the very last line of Mash was where they were driving off into the sunset, and the jeep breaks down, and you hear Bobby Troop go. This goddamn Jeep. And I just cracked everybody up, cracked me up. And so when Bobby Troop, uh, which was odd, he was playing a sergeant. He was really a captain in the Marine Corps in real life. But he was playing a sergeant in the Army. And when, so when he walked in, Bobby Troop was the one who impressed me the most. And I, and I have to tell you, I have never met a sweeter, more sincere dearest person in the world and Bobby Troop loved him. Well, and what's interesting is that, you know, obviously he was an actor, but he really saw himself as a musician first. Right. And, and so, and you said, you know, obviously you're a big fan of both Bobby and Julie um, because of, of their work. Yeah. So what was your relationship with them like? Well, I had a very deep friendship with them over yeah. the, over the years. I mean, very close. And, um, uh, saw them both, you know, through our show and after, and even in the last days of, you know, of their lives, I was mm. around that then for them. And, um, I was really close to Julie. Uh, Bobby, it was impossible not to feel close to him. He just was lovely. They were, he was a lovely guy. And, and through them, I met, uh, I mean, they knew everybody in the music business. Went, went to hear uh, um, oh, um, getting. Uh, I'm trying to think of who I'm. Duke's, Duke uh, Ellington. Duke Ellington. Went to see Duke Ellington at, at the uh, Ambassador. Then went to his apartment, and Sarah Vaughan was there, and oh, wow. Billy Eckstein, wow. and Joe Henderson, and you know, I mean. They knew everybody, and Bobby, because he he had this show for two seasons on jazz and, and introduced a lot of talent to, to people. Mm. Uh, and Julie was really well-respected by, you know, Ella Fitzgerald would come over each year to, to their party and Carmen McRae, and, yeah. and they'd sing. They'd sing, go, go on into 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning just singing, playing together. So, I mean, that's what we inherited, you know. I mean, the, and we, we always had... We had on the show the biggest explosion at the end of our at the end of each show. There would be some big thing that we do, and people would come and watch it on the lot. And then uh, on when the show ended, we'd always have a little end of the you know party with with good music. There was always good musicians and dancing, and 
you know, it's a lot of fun. Did they kind of take both of you under under their wings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You, you just felt at home with them. Uh, and that's the best way to put it. it. Everybody has a view of Julie London being this, you know, glamorous um, grand dame of, you know, uh, of, of music. And, but yet when she was on the set, she was like the den mother. And she was so stunningly beautiful. If she asked for anything, you know, if she asked, and the, oh, she had the crew in the palm of her hand. And if she asked for a coffee, 16 people would run out and get her, and she'd be drinking 16 <laughs> cups of coffee. I mean, they, they adored her. And she kept calling herself, I'm just a broad. You know, it's like I had never been around somebody like that before. And I just, I just worshipped her and, and, and Bobby. Bob Fuller was tough to get to know. I mean, he was, he's very uh, compacted within, you know, his, his celebrity. And uh, never got to know him till, and it was only later in the last you know, 10 or 20 years and watching his work that it would appear on, you know, I'd see him in Westerns and just go, God, this guy is really good at that. He's just really, you know, and so I wished, kind of have wished that I had been a little closer to him or, you know, had, had taken the time to understand that, you know, as an older guy, he probably had some things I could have learned, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I kind of, I, I didn't take advantage of that. Randy's gotten kind of close to him over the years. But were and that's you, been were you doing the show? Were you close with him then? No, not really. But I think I might have been a little bit closer to him than Kevin was uh, on the show. But no, we weren't all that close. But it was after the show that when I really got to know and really enjoy uh, Bob Fuller. Well, and what's interesting is when the show started, it was really focused on the on the hospital staff. But then as time went on, then it shifted to focus on two of you. So did that, I mean, was that the intention of the show or, or did they, did the writers change it once you guys gained in popularity? Well, it wasn't so much the writers as it was Bob Senator. And, and it was a kind of a decision that was made uh, higher up in, in Universal. They just started watching the fan mail. And when the fan mails come pouring in for us, they said, okay, that's what they want to see. So, you know, uh, but it was supposed to be um, a, a hospital show with, uh, with firefighters coming in. And the way Jack put it, it was, uh, yeah, okay, fine, we'll have these firemen. But th this, is, this is a show. They're just going to bring in. Uh, sick people and do their scenes and then leave and the rest of the show is going to be a hospital show well the demographics of the show quickly pointed out that they've seen these hospital shows before this is not something new what was new was firefighters being paramedics and because you know I would say up to 75 to 80 percent of the country had never heard of a paramedic before, didn't know what a paramedic was. I certainly didn't. I didn't know what a paramedic was. I mean, Kevin and I quickly found out what paramedics were, but uh, uh, I forget what your original question was. But no, that wasn't the writers. That was Bob Senator. <laughs> 
Uh, that I was one of our producers who decided that he wanted to uh, drop his pacemaker on the floor. <laughs> when we when we worked on the pilot, <laughs> when we started on the pilot, um, we realized that it was going to be an hour show. We did, I, I didn't think about that. I didn't really you know know that, which was unusual in itself because it's the only show that Jack ever produced that was an hour. All of his uh, series were always half hour. So th that was a big bite for him to take. But it was clear when we did the pilot that the leads were, they were the leads in the hospital and we were the minor characters on the side. And, you know, and, uh, and we're fine with that. I mean, you know, uh, or at least, yeah, we, we both were fine with that. But when they shifted, and that was a significant shift, and, and they were really secondary, how, how did they take that and did it change the dynamics? Well, I don't, you know, speaking from a, you know, I don't know, it's hard for me to say definitively how they took it. I know that Bob Fuller was probably a little hurt. I, I think he felt like he was being pushed aside. Bobby and Julie, I don't think it affected them at all. They just felt that they were, you know, lucky to have, you know, a long-running series. Well, of course, we didn't know it was long-running at the time. Do you have a different perspective? Well, yet? and we were both contract players when we started. When we started, Randy had been a contact player, contract player, and then Monique signed me up, and so we came into it contract players and stayed that way for four seasons they were the leads and that's how and so financially i mean the amount of money they made was equal to the to their to their names and to their star power you know they paid a great good we 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 were we were very <laughs> underpaid until about the fourth season uh which was okay you know and working with jack jack directed the pilot and and randy has you know I don't know if they're all positive memories of, you know, working with Jack, but Jack was, you know, a DI in charge. I, re I remember there was a situation where years later when we were on the show that uh, there was going to be an animal husbandry show uh, with uh, Mark. Dog catchers. Yeah. yeah, there were like two guys and. And there was a scene where we appeared on the on uh, in the scene where there was a goat. They had they had rescued a goat, and the goat was on a scope. And there were these two guys, Mark Harmon and and Albert Popwell, uh, and it was Randy and I and the little crippled girl and the goat. And I had no dialogue. And this was Jack directing me. Look at the goat. Look at the scope. Look at the goat. Look at the scope. Look at your partner. Look at the goat. Look at the partners. Look back at the goat. The scope, the goat, cut. And he came up to me and he went, pal, that's what you do best. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's how he directed. That's how he directed. <laughs> so no method acting there. No, 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 no. And, th and that was one of the that was one of the points where I have to I have to say that Kevin was calm. Uh, I was furious that he would say something like that. And I wanted to I wanted to kill him. And Kevin goes, no, no, it's all right. He was calm, didn't overreact, um, and so that I have to, you know, I gotta say, buddy, I I admired you for your restraint on that. I just literally wanted to jump across that that uh, table and strangle him, but I didn't. So let's talk about the show dynamics because Jack Webb was married to Julie London then divorced her, then she marries Bobby Troop, and he casts both of them in the series. Takes care of alimony, doesn't it? 
Is that what that was? I don't know, but it sure was. He was a very loyal. He was a very loyal guy. Well, that's two very interesting perspectives. Yeah. Well. He's giving him the bit of it. He's a very loyal guy. To his money. I say he was beaten. He was beating out was on, beating on, the, the system. on the alimony. <laughs> he, he used actors. We used many, had many actors on a show who had been on all his shows. It was really interesting. I mean, way back to the to the to the early days of TV, he had a lot of the actors, Jack Crucian, and people who were yeah. old pals of his. And he loved comedians. Well, Bob did too, Senator. And so we had a number of wonderful comedians uh, on the show. Mort Saul. Mort, Mort Saul, yeah. 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 Uh, I was amazed he did our show. Yeah. Amazed. Uh, we had, uh, who yeah, who was the biggest celebrity that came on that, that really... You were well, it by. depends on your point of view of what a celebrity is. Just for you. And in, in, in my opinion, it was Dick Buckus. Mm, Dick Buckus was on. Yeah. Uh, that was pretty big for me. John Carradine. Oh, oh yes. John right. Carradine did an episode. He did an episode, and he, he, you know, Grapes of Wrath, and I mean, you know, and yeah. his sons. And, and he was to be, he was a guy who made old ships. He, he he crafted old ships. So when they they didn't realize when they hired him, his hands were completely arthritic. You know, there was no way that he could even open them for a hull. Because you know, I said to Kevin, I said, how did he get his hands like that? I mean, that's some pretty good makeup, you know. I didn't realize, well, that was in real life. Uh, uh, another person, Cicely Tyson. We didn't have scenes with really? I don't think. Did we no, have scenes? No. But Cicely Tyson was on. I mean, I was impressed with her back then. Well, you know, she she quickly climbed right up, right up the ladder after that show. And I was a little surprised she even did the show. But um, I, you know, I was the other day. I was talking about. Remember when we had Larry Zonka yeah. on the show, the running back on the Miami Dolphins. He's crazy, by the way. I mean, he, he was at the time. I'm sure he's a you know, nice guy now, but uh, I, I was afraid of him. Uh, it's like, first off, I know what he can do on the football field. And he really got into the role where he was a crazy guy and we had to tackle him and take him down to the... And we thought, this guy, I don't know whether he knows this is called acting. You know, maybe he, I think we're going to get hurt on this one. And he did. He took us all on. All four of us, we jumped on him and tried to pin him down. And he would not go down. Finally, the director had to yell, Larry, you have to go down. He just was <laughs> refused to go down. Who else is Nick Nolte was on Nick the show. Nolte. Wow. So who, who came on the show kind of as a young actor or actress that went on to be a huge celebrity? John Travolta. Yeah. Uh, who else? Uh, Sharon Glass was on. Yeah. Yeah. And um, young actors. I hmm. can't think of anything right now. It doesn't mean it. You know, the show wasn't a show for actors, really. Right. I no. mean, it was. It was. Uh, like a showcase. Yeah, I mean, it, it just didn't. Cecily Tyson was a unusual, unusual to have somebody of that ilk. I mean, 
you know, you were somebody who was going to get bandaged or there was going to be, you know, they were going to put things on your chest or they were going to zap you. It just wasn't a show about, it was a documentary. It's, I mean, that's what's kind of interesting about the documentary that we're working on now is that, you know, as that we're not there on set, we're just sort of, you know, outside of it. But uh, emergency, the, the, the thrill of the show really, I think, was the, the rescues. Now, you know, there was usually three rescues in each show, and the, the top one being the big one. Sometimes the big one. there were four rescues. Yeah. Uh, and there was humor in the in the station, and then there were the scenes, you know, with the patients in the hospital. But uh, I think the public were really responded to the work we did and the paramedic advisors did, to, you know, during the run of that show. I think that's what... People would come up to me anyway, and they would remember various rescues. They never talked about what was going on in the hospital. It was, uh, oh, I remember that one where there, you know, a big toe was in the faucet, and you had to get it, you know. <laughs> I mean, and there were some silly ones with the girdle snapping in Randy's face, and you know. But and the guy who drank the, this is back when beer had the pop top, and it, it actually came off. And the guy who, who swallowed that. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it, there were humor, humorous rescues, uh, I, you know, and I didn't realize how humorous they were until I actually would watch the rescue. I go, oh, that, that's funny. But when we were doing it, we weren't playing it for laughs. We were playing it real. Well, and, and it, de- it definitely has, especially of that time, a real sense of reality about it. So did it start that way or did it evolve over time to be more you know, reality-based. It evolved. And did you guys have an influence on that? We had, well, Randy's influence was, you know, interesting um, because Bob patterned uh, a lot of the stories on on what Randy would be doing, what what Randy and his private life would be doing. If Randy got a camera... You know, then he'd then he'd suddenly got the idea of Randy doing you know, the gauge taking pictures and things. He he loved to work to write for Randy. You know, I I had a little trouble with the some of the humor in the show. It struck me as somewhat adolescent, but I went with it and and it you know he's smart. He's a Randy. smart guy. Well, yeah, Randy was able to he could pull anything off, and that you know is the attest to his talent. Um, I had a hard time with some of the humor. I mean, it just seemed kind of, but I think DeSoto would. He's, you know, I mean, I think the guy is just, you know, I patterned him on what I, on our paramedic advisors, a couple that I saw and who they were, and that's who I became. And, you know, uh, he just kind of went with the flow and, you know, tossed his head up sometimes when he, you know. When I felt it went too far. Yeah. Uh, the, the one thing that I, I tell everybody, I don't care where I'm at. Um, Johnny Gage was funny for one reason. Johnny Gage was funny because of Roy DeSoto. And the reason why I say that is that if I were doing all that stuff just by myself, it, it, it would, it, as he said, it's almost adolescent humor. And so whenever and I and I didn't probably I didn't know this at the time, but whenever my character would do something that just was a little too far, the rest of the country would look at Roy and go, "Did Johnny go too far?" 
And if Roy kind of rolled his eyes and went, okay, then they all knew Johnny was okay. But if Roy really put his foot down and said, that's crazy and you shouldn't do it, uh, then, then the country would turn on me and go, don't do it, Johnny. Roy was the adult, and I could not have been funny without Roy DeSoto. I could not have been funny without Kevin. That's a nice thing to say. The, the, nice or not, it's the yeah. truth. Uh-huh. It's the truth. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for this man right mm. here. Goes two ways. Well, and that's why you guys remain best friends. Yeah. You were, in, you were in Randy's wedding? Yeah. Uh, hey, look, this is, this is a good friend. He was he was best man at both my weddings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, t- yeah, Randy, you touched on the paramedic program when you guys started. So, when you guys started, obviously, you said you'd never heard of a paramedic. How many paramedics were in the country at that time? You know. I- there's always a floating number out there, but the last floating number that floated up to me was 13. Wow. In L.A. County. Hmm. Uh, I'm, uh, Seattle had some, Miami had some, Columbus, Ohio had some, but in L.A. County at that time, at the time we did our pilot, the, the floating number was 13. That's so what, what did the show do for the paramedic program? You know, we didn't invent paramedics. Um, They were around before us. Um, All the show did was it exposed it to the country. And people would sit at home and go, wait a minute, what? Um, Can you really do that? That, That's really, these firefighters can go out there and do this? No. Oh, yeah, it's happening in L.A. Oh, really? I want that for my city. That's what it did for the paramedic program. Did you ever imagine that that show would spawn an entire industry? I had no idea. Uh, no. Um, no, I had no idea. When we didn't even think about that. You know, the, 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 the difficult part of it for me was the celebrity. I mean, for a while it was really enjoyable. But then it got to be kind of... Then I just started, it it just was strange. It was strange to be treated differently. Mm -hmm. Um, Because on the show, we were like working people. But Mm -hmm. off the show, gradually, it was becoming kind of strange that you couldn't go anywhere without being recognized. And, you know... Since the show was on on at at 8 o'clock on Saturday night... We were never watched by our peers. Um, um, so we could go into like, uh, like a, a bar or, or anywhere and not be recognized. But since it was on 8 o'clock on Saturday night, the kids were watching. So I, you know, we couldn't go into grocery stores without being followed by a bunch of kids, you know, going, oh, look, he's buying mayonnaise, you know. Um, um, but uh, but then once it went into syndication, all those kids grew up, and uh, and then the adults weren't watching the syndication show. So 
we now could go back into the into the grocery store and buy whatever we wanted and not be followed around. But now we couldn't go into the bars because all those kids grew up. So it was it 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 was a notoriety that followed us throughout our lives, and uh, and there was a point where I I embraced it. And I said, you know, I'm wasting so much energy hiding with hats and glasses. And I, you know, it's like I'm tired of that. So one day I took off my hat, took off my glasses, and when somebody said, "Oh, I loved you in emergency," all I simply had to say was, "Thank you," and it was over. And so all those years, I, I ran from the notoriety of it. I didn't want to be famous. There was a in one of the in early in the season. I think it was the first season that. Uh, Jack was still co-writing. He was still officiating over the scripts and what they looked like, and so we had kind of the Malloy, the 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 uh, what's the police Adam Twelve kind of visits, you know, the, the paramedics, and there was one particular episode where we we went on a we went out on a burnt a truck that was on fire, and the, and it had marijuana in it. And he want, he had written down, you know, the script of, uh, you know, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, were you there? You know, I mean, direct questions, just like a Jack, just like Adam 12, but it was us. So we decided to not do it that way. Right. And we, we, the guys get a little high, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, off what's there, which is burning marijuana. And I guess Jack was livid. He was. He was. And it wasn't too long after that that he signed off on it. He still produced it, and made the money off it, but it was Bob Senator's show from from that on, you know. And uh, but uh, I always thought that really that was kind of the one that broke the camel's back in in our favor. Yeah, he kind of wiped his hands of it at that point. The Los Angeles County Fire Museum celebrates the history of the American Fire Service and the contributions made to that history by the Los Angeles County Fire Department. One of the Los Angeles County Fire Museum's goals is to document and present the evolution, history, and impact of fire-based emergency medical services. So, Kevin, you talked about you guys being contract players when you first came on. And obviously, you know, you were paid a small amount of money. Here you're on a hit show and all that. So, and that lasted for, what, four years? Yeah. But, you know, the Randy was a contract player when I came. When I was came in for the show, I was didn't even have an attorney. Uh, so I was in a kind of the catbird seat if I had known about it, If I if I had known that you know, really understood it in terms of money and all of that. I was so blown away by just being there at Universal. So Monique, uh, when she heard I was chosen, she asked to meet me and Monique James. And she was like, you know, legendary and this terrific, fabulous woman. And El- and her Eleanor Kilgallen was her counterpart in Back, in, back oh, wow. East, who was another <laughs> powerhouse. And basically, so was she in one of the top floors in the black building? Yeah, yeah. And basically she said to me that, you know, Kevin, uh, uh, you're not represented and you're, you know, Randy's a contract player. And she said, you know, I think it would be good for you both if you also became a contract player. I know you don't have representation now, but I have an attorney that would be good for you that he would. And that, that was uh, Goldman. 
You brought me take it. No, oh, you mean no, the, the agent? Oh, yeah, that was first, Bob Raison. Bob Raison. So she signed me the contract so that we would make exactly the same amount of money, which was pretty nil. Right. Uh, uh, I think Craft Service was making more than we were, you know, <laughs> the first couple of seasons. And uh, that was a step that was so smart and, you know, I mean, on her part, and so set the tone for who we were to become yeah, sort of equal down the line. And your partnership. Okay, so tell yeah. the Bob Raison story of when you guys went, when you guys decided as a team that you were going to go for more money and what you did. Oh, and Bob Raison is like, just to throw in this, he was Cole Porter, one of his best friends. Bob was really connected to people. Yeah. You know, I mean, he knew everybody. Uh, we were rubes, you know, <laughs> really, when it came down to it. So, anyway. so, so. What did he propose? How are you guys going to go for more money? I don't know whether I should tell this story or not because of legal reasons. <laughs> but the only way we could get Bob suggested that, you know, if one of us got sick or, God forbid, one of us gets sick, you know, uh, it might they might think about I don't know whether I should tell this story or not. Uh, but anyway, so I said, you know, of course, Kevin. So if you if somebody got sick, that means you'd have to halt production. Halt production. And then that might create a ripple effect. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, and it did too. And so, uh, so me, I jumped right on it. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, somebody should get sick. Well, you know, you can't just invent a sickness. Um, uh, How did Kevin, you decide who was going to get sick? Kevin is thinking about it. You know, well, I don't know. He, you know, he analyzed it up and down. Not me. I didn't analyze it at all. I said, yeah, yeah, somebody should get sick. So I said, let's flip a coin. See who gets sick. So you're in Bob Raison's office? Uh, yes. We were sitting on his couch, actually. So he flips a coin. And before I can actually see how it landed... He grabbed the coin. He said, oh, Randy, you lose. And I went, okay. But I didn't think for a minute, you know, that that, that thing landed right. And, uh, and so Kevin kind of sat back and breathed a sigh of relief. And so I got some strange Mexican disease that I caught in Mexico <laughs> camping. And it put you in the hospital. It because did. I remember visiting you. And nobody came to visit me except you, and you were the only one who was worried about me. I was. My and I, mom I didn't understand why mother, she really didn't care. She was didn't actually, care. She, she, was she, mad. Mad. Yeah. she was mad. Yeah, she didn't like it at all. So finally, I, you know, I said to Kevin, hey, I'm up here. I'm in the hospital. You haven't visited me once. Oh, okay, well, I'll come up uh, next weekend. So he came, he came up, what, once or twice? And I'm I'm going out of my mind. I mean, and I went this this being sick sucks, you know. Well, didn't you say you kept trying to sneak out to smoke cigarettes, and that got you in trouble? And, and I got constantly in trouble with that. So, because this is what I smoked, I don't smoke anymore. I hope everybody understands that is not good for you. And uh, uh, and so it, it was just a perfectly miserable, miserable time. By that time. Um we had been on the show, we were in our fourth season, and I was married on the show to a wife that you never saw. She appeared Joanne. in the pilot for like one scene, and then there was another one, and she appeared 
but it was enough to make to uh, suddenly I I was a character with two, two kids and a wife, and uh, who you never saw. But you know, I would have random phone calls about the wife and you know about the kids and all of that. <laughs> well, what happened was his fan mail skyrocketed because he was single without any and 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 I suddenly be, you know and so he became the power in, in, of 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 the two of us you know he had he had he had the power if there it, go the phony coin flip if it had been me i don't know you know they just would have gotten another wife or something you know <laughs> uh, um, but as it was it you know it worked it worked out fine for us but he was getting tons of fan mail and i would get quite a bit of fan mail about how i get in, how to get in touch with him <laughs> you know so did you get the raise Yes, we, we did. Yeah, yeah. We it, did. And it wasn't. We were making four thousand a week at the top, and friends of like I had a friend Mike Onkeen on the rookies who was making seventeen thousand a week. You know, I mean, we had. Yeah, we were not making yeah. that much. And four thousand was a lot of money. Do you know? Do you know how much we were making the very first year we did the show? Three hundred and fifty dollars or something. Seven hundred and fifty dollars a week. Yeah. Yeah, it was really. Uh, then it moved up to fourteen hundred, and then I got sick. <laughs> <laughs> and it was also it rearranged. Um, it rearranged who was making money too. I mean, it wasn't so overloaded that you know the the three in the that the hospital was the major. It, it was obvious that now the the paramedic fire department was the the major part of the show and that the the hospital became ancillary and that 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 helped. I mean, you know, we probably would still be making 700 to the fifth or sixth season. So his fan mail goes up. Yeah. Your fan mail they want to connect with him. Yeah. And yet, none of that interrupted your friendship. In fact, didn't you, for the first five years, you guys shared a motorhome? Isn't that right? Oh, the whole time we did. The whole time. And so then yeah. you were given the choice to have your own, and you guys decided not to. Um, um, well, I didn't want to. Kevin said, yeah, I think I want my own. And I said, oh, come on, Kevin, please, come on. We're buddies, man. We've been in this together. And finally, I talked him into it. But I remember when we got a brand new motor. I don't remember that at all. You don't? No. How do you remember I it? I remember just the just uh, the two of us thinking for a while of what we wanted to do with you know. I mean, because we went to that motorhome we show, yeah, Dodger Stadium. Yeah, yeah, but but we were not thinking in terms. By that point, we weren't thinking in terms of you and I getting separate ones. We were looking at what was out there for the two of us. Who would be the best one for the tourists? And we okay. found yeah, that you're, one, you're right. You're right. Which yeah. led to you know the next season when we got the bobcat named Cray. But we'll, 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 I'll let, let Randy tell that story. Uh, uh, no, I want to tell the story. We we wanted to go to Dodger Stadium, right? But we get we're so recognized, right? And and, and Dodger Stadium was just <laughs> right filled filled with people, and so. <laughs> so we decided we'll go in disguise. <laughs> so we bought these mustaches, or we got them from makeup or whatever. So we had these stupid mustaches. 
And I kept looking at Kevin, and you know, back then, and of course, nobody's going to remember this, but back then there were these little matchbook <laughs> covers. It says, draw me. And if you could draw this character, that you know they wanted to talk to you about being a you know cartoon artist or whatever, right? So I kept looking at this little matchbook cover with this guy with this mustache, and it says, "Draw me." And I look at it, and I says, "God, Kevin, you look just exactly like Pierre. Draw me." And so the whole night we're we're having people show us these motorhomes, and I says. Uh, Monsieur Jomi, <laughs> ask him about this, right? And every time we do that, we would go into gales of laughter. And these poor salesmen were like, who are these guys? You know, obvious we had these phony, you know, mustaches on. and But we just had a blast. And we finally picked one and Universal bought it for us, right? Yeah. Yeah. Remember when JJ, our driver, uh, JJ, right, parked for some reason, his favorite parking lot when we were on the set, uh, when we were at the studio, he always seemed to park it next to the men's restroom for whatever reason. And we kept saying, can't you, like, park this someplace else every time somebody flushes the toilet where we can hear it? You know, and he says, no, this is the best spot, blah, blah, blah. And so one day I'm in that bathroom and I'm bragging about our beautiful motorhome. Well, the person that was at the other urinal was James Garner. And he's listening. He's listening to me bragging about. And he said, come here. You want to see a good motorhome? Now, his motorhome was parked right behind ours. And he says, I'll show you a good motorhome. Well, I walked in. I couldn't believe. I mean, it was luxury personified. And here I am thinking that our motorhome was the greatest. This was like palatial. Had a TV set in it. We didn't. Um, uh, you know, it was like. And so I went over to Kevin. <laughs> I went over to Kevin. He was in the motorhome. And I said, hey, Kevin, uh, you want to see James Garner's motorhome? And I told him all about it. And Kevin says, yeah. So he walks out of the motorhome. He goes in the back and knocks on the door and says, can I see your motorhome? Yeah, come on in. So he, Kevin comes back and he goes, we're getting screwed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was such a nice guy, Jim. Garner. Yeah, he, he was. Uh, we were in the, uh, when we first went to the, uh, what's the name of the restaurant? They, what do they call it? The uh, Oh, in the valley? No, in our, our, on the lot. Our, our, the commissary. Commissary. Went to the commissary, and we were sitting there, and he brought his daughter over and introduced us to his daughter, who looked like she was a fan of the show. <clears throat> and just a great guy. Everybody, everybody who worked on the lot loved, loved Joe. Uh, so what would you say the high point of the show was for each of you? Uh, season four. Four or five, because we knew our roles, for me, for me, because we knew our roles, we knew who our characters were, uh, and and obviously I could grow my hair as long as I wanted because there was nobody that's going to stop me. And I, I think I was just flying high as a kite season five, because mm. we knew this was probably going to be the last year. But it turned out that, you know, for... 
two seasons afterwards we did the seven two-hour movies uh, so it, it lasted a little bit longer than five years but uh, I, I, I think that that was uh, that to me was I was in heaven uh, on season five Kevin probably will have a different perspective on that I mean, uh, Kevin went off the show the end of season one was great because we we had never been to Hawaii Oh yeah, yeah, and we yeah. just said to ourselves, "Let's go. Let's just go to the Hawaii for the weekend." For the weekend, <laughs> and we did. We got a first class flight, which was the first time I was ever flown on first class. Yeah, and we went to Hawaii and had a ball. Met, met a couple ladies, and then yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, it was just really nice. Yeah, he meets and falls in love with a nun. I mean, I didn't. I never got that, but, <laughs> but. Remember how'd that turn out? Was it a nun? It was. She was a nun. Yeah. Uh, well, a nun sister. Whatever they. Uh, she wore that collar, uh, and I, I thought, Kevin, you're barking up the wrong tree here. It's gonna go nowhere. <laughs> that work out for you, Kevin. <laughs> well, there was always a couple books to read. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> so have you guys have you guys learned anything about each other that you didn't know after talking today? Things of how you felt about each other? No, not really. I mean he's always been my best friend, so nah. I think you know, it's it's uh, I'm sure a lot of people could thinks about think about this because it happens to us all as we age. But it's just been kind of interesting that with our aging and our friendship, you 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 have that history of you know you find it with if your your husband or your wife where they look exactly like they looked years and years ago, and you may not see them for a while, and then you see, gee, they look a little old, and then about five seconds pass, and you're right back where you were, yeah. you know. And uh, we've been able to enjoy actually being there in the past and actually being here in the future and you know it's all working pretty well yeah yeah well what's interesting is that you guys have had this long friendship and and then always had the desire to make a documentary about paramedics and and you have so you've started that and so we're going to talk a little bit about that next time but before i let you go uh, talk a little bit about why it was important for you to focus on paramedics and to do this documentary into the unknown. Well, for for, for me, focusing on paramedics is very important um, because you know we portrayed paramedics on the show, and uh, and I've sort of stayed with it for, for for all these many years, and I've watched uh, paramedics become. Uh, I've, you know, I've, I've watched them go from not knowing what a paramedic was to um, to now all of a sudden there are, uh, those paramedics are out there. But now all of a sudden, due to a lot of different things, either mass shootings or you know the, the COVID virus that has hit our our world actually, um, that people are. They either are avoiding being a paramedic, an EMT or a paramedic, or they're 
resigning and getting out of it. And those coffers are not being filled. And that always bothered me, always bothered me. When the show Emergency was on the air, it was a great inspiration for a lot of people because they had a show that they could watch and would inspire them. Now that's not there anymore. And so, um, you know, the young kids who want to be paramedics today, they don't know Emergency. They, you know, they don't watch it. It's not of their generation. And I think on a personal level, I wanted to change that or try to change that. And I also wanted to give accolades to the people who were paramedics and, and that, that have stayed with it all this time. Because it's so important for our society uh, to have an EMS, EMS system that we have today. And uh, I, I, my whole personal point of view is to inspire that person to, to be the, the greatest person they can be. And you can't be any greater than to lay down your own life for the betterment of, of mankind. And, and that's what, that was the point that I wanted to make in this, doing this, uh, this documentary. And in particular, the documentary focuses on specific paramedics and their stories of what they're, what they do, why they do it, and their passion and compassion around it. Kevin, what was your drive to have this film made? Um, I just felt that the series never really got its due. You know, it, it, uh, once it was, uh, once it ended and it could have gone on, it wasn't like we, we were faltering in the, uh, you know, our audience, the audience was staying pretty much the same. We were pretty solid all the way through. They just, it was somewhat of a political move, I think, to actually end it. Uh, it benefited them to end this show in order to be able to syndicate another show. Uh, what was your question again? Uh, so what, what was your drive to see the, the documentary so, made? So I just thought to, and, and voiced to Randy uh, that we'd never really got our due because of, it was on against all in the family and at 8 o'clock and then Kung Fu was after that. And we were, you know, pretty much the kids show or the, the lower, you know, folks who d would watch, I don't want to say the working man, you know, wa watched us. Uh, uh, um, there was no erudition on our show. It was, the, the, you know, uh, all the family had that in spades. But we did have a documentary approach. We had uh, a lot of the crew had, had been to Vietnam, had, you know, had that Vietnam experience. Uh, we had a handheld camera, which was fairly new during that time. And we merged that in with what, what I had trouble with, but what, what Bob Senator rendered so well, you know, thought, thoughtfully, was the, the humor that he added to the show. So we, we, you know, so to be able, I just wanted us to be able to be recognized, at least for playing a part in what the show has become, what the, the profession has become, and also to be somewhat responsible to help in any way we can with furthering this, you know, the, the paramedic program and make it available to everyone and, and be sure that it will never be less than that, you know, of use and by use by the people. And you're filming all over the country. So what are some of the cities that so you're highlighting? Far, so far we filmed in Baton Rouge, a great, a great pair of paramedics there. Uh, then uh, Denver, another pair of paramedics. And then um, I think we went from there to Oregon. 
then we went to Sparks, Nevada, and uh, we were going to go to Tucson, but he Tucson, Arizona, but he was kind enough to come to us, and uh, and then we have uh, and you know something I'm not going to tell you who else we have. Uh, we're just going to let that be a secret. Well, that'll be the second in the series, and we'll talk more about Into the Unknown, the paramedic's journey, and the documentary that you guys are both executive producers on. So, thank you. It's been our pleasure. Likewise. (laughs) (laughs) KMG 365.